to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we turn to some hip-hop from the 1990s and its glorification of capitalism. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. criticism of hip-hop is that while it purports to be a revolutionary art form, while it purports to be a, an expression of rebellion against the status quo, it ultimately proves itself to be rather conforming, that it simply glorifies the same concerns uh, with capitalism and, uh, and mass uh, wealth and so on, bling, right, bling and, and women and cars that mainstream society glorifies. And even if it sometimes, if hip-hop narratives sometimes go about creating alternative means of arriving at those goals, they still wind up with the same corrupt goals that big business exploits. Now, of course, let's not paint with too wide a brush. There's plenty of hip-hop out there, plenty of approaches to hip-hop, and not all hip-hop is the same. Uh, Almost from the very beginning, there's plenty of of hip-hop that is anti-capitalist or at least suspicious of capitalism. And those kinds of, uh, some of that hip-hop we will discuss in the next episode. But for this episode, I'm interested in exploring the notion of hip-hop that produces a kind of romance of capital, that glorifies acquisition that glorifies uh, the signifiers of wealth and of attainment. And the approach that I'm going to use here ultimately comes from uh, the sociologist Robert Merton and his so-called anomy theory or strain theory, right? Anomy means that the, the norms have broken down, right? So against the, the normative notion of society. And this idea, of course, comes out of Durkheim and other uh, sociological writers. We, we don't need to worry about the whole uh, background of it. But the point here is that, uh, that ultimately there's a Marxist insight here, right? Because Marx said, of course, famously, and we've, we've mentioned this in a previous episode, that all that was solid melts into air, right? That that's what modernism does. Modernism takes all of those old traditions that used to provide stability and it erodes them. You see, for Marx... Capitalism is an incredibly destabilizing manner of existence, of economic existence, because it requires constant change and innovation, and and it requires a great deal of, um, ultimately, uh, corruption and, and, uh, and the focus of power and control in order to maintain even a semblance of stability. Capitalism winds up being the ultimate expression of class struggle, where the the class on top has to exert incredible force in order to maintain its position. And so the notion here is that uh, all those old traditions that bound people together, those are all up for grabs now, that those are all eroded and, and, and cast to the wind. 
Because what's really important is getting ahead financially and all the other things that, that provide some kind of stability to life, whether it be religion or family structure and so on, all of that becomes subordinated to this pursuit. Now, strain theory is the other way that people put Robert Merton's work, right? And because the idea is that the uh, the goals of some forms of society, and, and including capitalist forms of society, actually, perhaps inadvertently, encourage deviance. Now, you can see how that would be the case if the, the notion here is that capitalism is inherently destabilizing, that even if the ideal of any society is to create some kind of stability, because stability uh, fosters reliability, it fosters the possible the notion that that if I go out in the world, I can basically uh, guarantee my own safety, my own well-being, uh, that that I know basically how things work, and surprises are aberrations. But for Marx, and I, I suspect for Merton, uh, modern society, modern capitalist society, doesn't offer those guarantees. It offers a semblance of those guarantees, but it doesn't really offer them uh, in the strong sense. It encourages deviance right from the top down, because the idea is, is that you're constantly trying to exploit markets. You're constantly trying to uh, exploit other people. And so the notion of, of strain theory here is that crime, ultimately, is a result not of a rejection of the capitalist structure, but rather an embracing of it. Now, this notion was developed by Stephen F. Messner and Richard Rosenfeld in their very successful textbook, Crime in the American Dream, in which they write that crime in America derives in significant measure from highly prized cultural and social conditions, end quote. And that the highly prized cultural and social condition, of course, is the American dream. The idea uh, that goes back to really at least the 19th century in the U.S., the, the, and the, the whole Horatio Alger, right? Horatio Alger, the, the novelist who often writes these from rags to riches kinds of novels. The idea of, of a young person, usually a young man, right? Pulling oneself up from one's bootstraps, making a success where there was none guaranteed to them. And that's, that's part of the ideology of capitalism as well, right? The self-made man. And again, often man, right? But the self-made person, the idea that you can be born into poverty and yet work your way up through, through diligence and commitment to a higher level of being. And that's how it's envisioned, right? That, that, that economic attainment grants you a higher level of, of being, of security, and so on. And so if society doesn't grant you security, if that's part of Merton's anomie theory, that it no longer guarantees it, then wealth might. If you can't be guaranteed security through others, through your relationship to others, then maybe you can buy it. So this is what is sometimes referred to as an institutional anomie theory, and it builds on Merton's notions. Basically, they break society down into four institutional areas, right? There's family, which deals with reproduction, care, and support. There's education, which imparts norms and values, politics, monitoring, uh, and the control of, of collective goals, and then economy, the production and distribution of economic goods. Notice that 
family here doesn't have to be literally your family, your your brothers and sisters and your mother and your father. It's it's even government has a role in that kind of sense of family because government, at least uh, the U.S. government to some degree, right, has a welfare system and so on, and that that offers care and support. Hospice systems uh, offer care and support. Education isn't only in a classroom, right? Religion participates in education. Uh, My literal family participates in education, teaches me things, and so on. So they're thinking of these as institutional areas, not actual institutions that we can point to, although they involve actual institutions that we can point to. So the four that we have here are family, education, politics, and economy. In the 1980s, the neoliberal policies of Reagan and Thatcher and so on led to the overemphasis on the free market and other, all the other institutional values, family, education, and politics then became subordinated to the economy. So anything not related to the economy is devalued and other areas accommodate themselves to the economy. So we go to university not simply to be educated, but in order to get a job, in order to be economically viable. One reason we might go to church is not to to be educated or for that sense of care and support, but rather to network, right, in order to get ahead in society. And so everything becomes geared toward the notion of the economy. This is their theory, Messner and Rosenfeld in Crime in the American Dream. And so our language and our behaviors become more and more associated with the economy. The, the economy penetrates and permeates all other areas of existence, right? Am I spending my free time profitably? Think about that, right? My free time. That's a, that's a, a paraphrase of, a, of something that we might have said to ourselves at some point, right? Wasting free time. Am I spending my free time properly? So the notion of spending Right? And, and spending in order to do what? Investment, to, to gain profit, right? Am I getting a return on my investment in loved ones and so on? Have you ever thought about uh, someone that you're dating in, in quasi economic terms, right? What am I getting out of this relationship? What gain am I uh, getting? Am I, am I getting a return on my investment? Are they giving me as much as I'm putting in? These are economic ways of thinking, and I'm not trying to say that they're not useful ways of thinking at times. I don't know. But the point is that uh, these areas that are not economic become subordinated to the economic. They write, quote, Americans are exceptionally resistant to social control and therefore exceptionally vulnerable to criminal temptations, end quote. Right? So part of the American dream here is that you're an individual. You pull yourself up. By your bootstraps, you attain your own success, and you can hear even even figures like Donald Trump talk about how he built his own empire, even though he was born quite wealthy. There's an old joke about people who were uh, born on third base and think they hit a triple, right? And there's plenty of them. I'm just picking one of the most famous as my example. Uh, this idea that 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 even if you inherited your wealth, the belief system, the ideology, is that you are a self-made person. And so the American dream then involves four values, achievement orientation, you are what you've achieved, and it doesn't really matter how you got it, especially when you, be, when you become big enough that you're no longer directly involved with an average person, a middle-class person, right? We tend to glorify the robber barons like uh, Andrew Carnegie and so on, 
right? We we spend less time worrying about all of the depredations and and uh, and and strong-handed use of power that they employed in order to get their wealth. We go and visit their homes because we admire their the wealth itself, right? And so if you get big enough, how you got that wealth no longer matters. That's the first value: achievement orientation. Second value is individualism. Right? We are competitors in this society, not collaborators. Capitalism functions on the idea that if I win, someone else has to lose. And therefore, I see you as competition. And that, again, permeates all sorts of, uh, of, of aspects of our life. Right? Have you ever vied for a position in, a, in an elevator, pushing someone else out? We're not, we, we often don't live as collaborators. That's the second value. Third value is universalism. We should all achieve the American dream. And we all have equal opportunity to achieve that dream. This is ideology, of course, not actuality. But we believe that anyone, if they work hard enough and apply themselves, should be able to achieve the American dream. And sometimes that will come through non-legally sanctioned opportunities, right? And then finally, the fourth value is, of course, materialism. We need things, and there's no end where we should be satisfied, right? No matter how much you've attained, you can always attain more. Because that striving becomes part of the notion of the American dream. So you have these four values. Achievement orientation, individualism, universalism, and materialism. And these are the values of the American dream, according to, uh, according to Messner and, and Rosenfeld, right? And you can start to see how this then applies to the ideas behind uh, images of bling and so on in hip-hop, right? The idea that uh, one is seeking after material attainment at all costs. And this has a particular impact on a subgenre of hardcore hip-hop known as mafioso rap, which starts in the late 80s and really kind of comes into its own in the 1990s. And that's what we're going to turn to next. mafia references in hip-hop in the late 80s, leading to so-called mafioso rap. 
In some ways, this could be seen as an East Coast counterpart to the rise of the G-Funk style from the West Coast in, in Dr. Dre. The subjects of songs range from the street-level depiction of violence of the drug trade and organized crime to the higher echelons of the mob and the extravagant lifestyles of the bosses. A song like Cool G Rap's Streets of New York from 1990 presents a gritty picture of the ghetto with basically no redeeming qualities. But other songs tap into the alluring opportunities hidden within the overall urban decay of the streets. His debut album of the previous year, of, of uh, 1989, Road to the Riches, includes the title track that portrays the streets as violent, hard, and unforgiving, but also an ideal platform for the ambitious. Cool G Rap espouses the American dream of a rise to wealth owing to dedication and innovation, the cornerstone of the romance of capitalism. His first verse insists that he held these values from the age of five, that he never, quote, took a break, never made a mistake, took time to create because there's money to make, end quote. He worked grocery stores and as a porter, and eventually, after dreaming of it for five years, he, quote, cut his first plate. That is, he made his first rap single. Now, this is no Wizard of Oz stuff. For Cool G, he says the road ain't yellow and it ain't, there ain't no witches. Uh, he earned what he has. So this verse, complete with its rollicking quasi-boogie-woogie piano loop, suggests that while it takes years to become a billionaire, that level of attainment is open to anyone that strives hard enough. This is just the American dream, right? But there's an elision here that gets filled in during the next verse. There was something left out of account in that first verse, a kind of middle step between busting his hump at $4 an hour jobs and making it as a rapper. And that middle step was selling crack cocaine. The next verse addresses it directly, quote, I used to stand on the block selling cooked up rock, money busting out my sock because I really would clock, end quote. He describes crack fiends offering him clothing and magazines in lieu of money, anything, anything to feed their addiction. These were, in his words, quote, people hungry for the blast that don't even last, end quote. Right? And he, he recognizes the futility of it, but he's supplying it anyway for a profit. He realizes, of course, that he was in a predatory position. He's profiting off of the suffering of his neighbors. Quote, didn't want to be involved, but the money will get you, end quote. He starts to build a reputation with the police, and he builds a crew. He deems himself the town's Al Pacino. And now, of course, referencing Scarface and Carlito's Way and so on, the first of many references to Al Pacino characters that, that come up in mafioso rap. And now that quasi-mafioso imagery takes over the whole song. There are no more references to childhood dreams, nor even to the rise of Cool G as a rapper until perhaps the very end of the track. Uh, in, in the first verse, if you recall, that was presented as his ultimate road to riches. But instead, that middle step, the slinging of crack cocaine, which first appeared as a kind of absence, insofar as it wasn't mentioned at all in the first verse. Uh, it's as though that he moves smoothly in that first verse from weekly paycheck jobs to rap stardom, right? But now that middle step, the crack cocaine step uh, that was stepped over in the narrative, now that becomes the entire focus of the song, and we never really leave it behind. The third verse is, to my mind, the most interesting. It continues to explore uh, his drug-dealing life, its dangers, and its opportunities. Indeed, he ups the level of excitement through a, a real focus on internal rhyme uh, throughout the verse, but it's clear at the opening of that third and final verse, quote, a thug will mug for drugs, he eventually bugs, looking for crack on carpet and rugs, 
right? So the ug sound, and and perhaps that's significant too, right? The it's not just that it's um, an internal rhyme, but it's that particular sound of ug, right? That the, we're now getting into the uh, details of the depravity of the situation. Uh, a little further on, uh, he says, the, the squealer tells, but the dealer still sells little spoiled kids inheriting oil wells, right? And then further on still, uh, quote, bloodshed, I painted the town red, people fled as I put Dred's head to bed, that means dead, in other words, deceased, face got erased, bullets got released, end quote. Right. So notice how uh, here that's the ed sound at first. Right. Bloodshed painted the town red. People fled as I put Dred's head to bed. See how there's an acceleration there. Right. Uh, building on the excitement, but also giving this this rat a tat tat kind of delivery, which uh, I I think perhaps connotes uh, gunplay and so on, right? And, and in case you're not sure of what it means to put Dred's head to bed, he clarifies that means dead. In other words, deceased, face got erased, bulls got released. Right, so this this idea of of a kind of uh, back and forth uh, that's that's happening um, cause and effect ultimately. That once you've gone down this road, there's a certain logic that unfolds, and that death and and murder and uh, gunplay is all just a part of it. But something curious happens in this third verse. The subject of the narrative gets blurred. As Cool G veers from the eye, the things the narrator of the rap, Cool G's persona in the rap, did, and then it shifts to the you, as in, quote, you blew off his top when the pistol went pop. And then it shifts to a he, a third person, as in, quote, some young male put in jail, his lawyer so good his bail is on sale, end quote. Now this young male becomes the, the focus of roughly the second half or last third, depending on how you see it, of, of, the, of that third verse. And this young male thinks that he's basically John Gotti. That's the, that's the comparison uh, that's raised, right? But with enough time in prison and enough pressure from the law, he becomes yet another snitch. And now Cool G himself reemerges at the end of the verse. He says, quote, Not my lifestyle, so I made a U-turn. More money I earn, more money to burn, end quote. So notice... He's put some of the burden here on this third person, this unnamed John Gotti-like uh, person who goes to jail and then becomes a snitch. But he didn't follow that path. He made a U-turn. Now, you can see how this all becomes kind of confusing. Just what was the relationship to the drug game of the song's narrator, the eye of the lyrics? Just like the elision uh, in the first verse, the erasure of any reference to crack, uh, I think the subject confusion in the third verse functions as a kind of erasure of its own. Because the question can't help but arise, okay, if the road to the riches is basically a three-step program of low-paying wage work, step one, to slinging crack, step two, to cutting your first rap demo and making it as a rapper, step three, then in one sense, the linchpin here seems to be that second step. Getting your name out, getting in a studio, getting distribution, that all calls for investment. Hell, taking time away from wage work just to do low-paying gigs and get discovered has an impact on an artist's bottom line, right? So even if we imagine that his rise in rap was funded by others, like, say, a record company, he had to sacrifice time and money to make that happen. And I'm guessing the grocery store gig wasn't cutting it. He needed money to, to have those opportunities. So you can see the issue here, the part that should interest us, the way in which the crack sales funded the rise of the artist, the way the illegal pursuit of income based on the suffering and death of others laid the foundation for legitimate success in music. That part 
that part that should intrigue us, that gets blurred by this shifting subjectivity from the I to the you to the he. And that allows Cool G to do what so many mafioso rappers wind up doing, glorifying crack sales as a reasonable, even exalted form of street capitalism, while still condemning what is ultimately predatory behavior grounded in taking financial advantage of the addictions and deaths of one's neighbors. And so crack capitalism functions in much the same way as big business capitalism. Those on top, the capos in the mafioso analogy, make huge profits that require the dehumanization and dispossession of others below them. If you win big, someone else has to lose big. They have to lose it all. And there is no CEO in the world that will accept that kind of blame. And apparently neither will the narrator of Road to the Riches. Now, mafioso rap expands, really, in the mid-90s, specifically because of one very important album, only built for Cuban links by Ray Kwan of the, uh, of, of the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, as you probably already know, is not only a group of, you know, usually thought of as nine MCs, although the, the roster expands and contracts depending on what, what era we're talking about, it's not only that, it's also a, it's a series of solo artist recordings, right? And Raekwon was third in line. Uh, Method Man had an album out first. That was the first solo album, then um, Old Dirty Bastard, and then Raekwon's is, th- is third. And Raekwon's, in a sense, isn't quite a solo album. It's all set up in a very cinematic fashion. It doesn't totally abandon the Shaolin Kung Fu aesthetics of the earlier albums, including, of course, the debut um, uh, Wu-Tang album, 36 Chambers, and and some of that um, uh, Shaolin stuff shows up on Method Man's and, and of course, uh, Dirty Old Bastards albums, and also on Raekwon's. But it leaves that to the side, or it makes that a subordinate feature of this. The, what, what is really the center of attention here is the cinematic quality of this album. And of course, Raekwon saw that. In an interview, he says, quote, I was Al Capone to Ghostface Killer's uh, Frank Nitti, and that's how I, I characterized us as a duo. That image clicked with me, and I began to think of the album as our version of The Godfather, end quote. And so you see that, that in, um, RZA, the, the producer of all of these albums, uh, said something very similar in, a, in another interview where he said that, that basically it was working like a film where Raekwon was the lead character and Ghostface Killer was the supporting character. And he even says that, that of the two of them, uh, Raekwon may or may not have won uh, an Emmy for, for the lead character, but Ghostface Killer definitely won an Emmy for the, the supporting character role, right? Raekwon goes on in, in another interview, quote, I just got ghost thinking in a mafia-inspired criminal cadence, which was my vision since I thought of the Klan as our own mob, complete with a similar type of loyalty, end quote. And so he discusses watching a bunch of films, specifically Scarface, Across 110th Street, and Godfather for, for inspiration for this album. And that, along with The Killers, the John Woo film The Killers, those... those um, and, and Once Upon a Time in America, those all get referenced in the album, sometimes through direct quotation, where RZA uses uh, quotes from the movies uh, themselves as, as opening parts of the songs, sometimes through uh, references within the skits, and also, of course, through the use of what are sometimes called the Gambino aliases that uh, Raekwon had the various members of the Wu-Tang Clan that show up on this album employ, 
right? So Ghostface Killer becomes Tony Starks from Iron Man. They're they're not actual Gambino names, but they're aliases that uh, that Raekwon uh, convinced them to use. Raekwon's own alias is Lou Diamonds, and that comes from Louis Roederer, who uh, made Crystal. The, the, the champagne crystal, and then also, of course, Raekwon's love at that time for diamonds, for ice, right? And, and, and Raekwon insists in his, in his autobiography that their album was the first one to really emphasize crystal and make it an emblem of sophistication and uh, an arrival, of, of the arrival at a certain level of wealth. Master Killer becomes Noodles, Right and Jizza Maximilian, and they're both from the film. Those names are both from the film Once Upon a Time in America. Inspector Deck becomes Rolly Fingers, apparently for how well he rolled joints. But they all have these aliases, right? And so the idea, the concept of the album is that they're these two guys that want to go straight. This is this is uh, basically Rizza's. I'm paraphrasing Rizza here, but they have one more sting to pull off, one more uh, job that they have to pull off. And in the in the process, uh, Ugod, the guy that the the Ugod plays within this, dies. He dies in the second track in Knuckleheads, right? And there are all sorts of ins and outs here to the to the story, including a kind of fade out uh, song at the end that's supposed to sort of be a as Raekwon envisioned it at least a kind of slow motion ending to the to the film so they're seeing this in very visual terms obviously and a lot of those visuals have to do with gangster films mafioso films like i said uh specifically the godfather uh scarface of course and um uh once upon a time in america and then the john woo film the killers Right, uh, and so we we hear excerpts from them or near allusions to those songs. One of the songs, one of the best songs on the album, is "Incarcerated Scarfaces." Right, that Raekwon uh, felt very strongly about because he felt that it was a, a shout out to all the people that he knew when he was in the drug game who were incarcerated, who were in in um, prison, and, and could easily be forgotten. And so the album has this very interesting, uh, uh, the same kind of thing that we already saw with Cool G Rap. On the one end, there's this glorification of crack uh, selling, of, 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 of drug dealing, as a street-level capitalism. And sure, there are sacrifices to be made, but there's also gains to be made. And if the idea is that, that crime is about not getting an education and not applying oneself, well, then that doesn't apply here, does it? Because after all, as we see over and over again in these mafioso raps, take, for instance, the Ten Crack Commandments by Biggie Smalls, right? There's a lot of education going on. There's a lot of of learning, street level, if you wish, but still learning involved uh, that gets depicted in these songs. There is an education. And there's also, obviously, a great deal of application. In fact, most of the songs that talk about drug dealing uh, from this this era of the mid-'90s are talking about how hard of work it was, how smart you had to be, how you had to outwit other people. You had to be better at things. You had to be the the best. That is about competition. And, yeah, just as in a a mafioso situation, you're going to create a gang around you. You're going to create a crew. Right. And, and loyalty is what what matters in the crew. But you can't ultimately rely on loyalty. That's one of the messages of a lot of uh, mafioso rap and a lot of the mafia movies. Loyalty breaks down and that ultimately the person you have to rely upon is yourself. Well, what is that if not the individualism and materialism and universality of the American dream? 
and the the emphasis on on um, achievement, right? So the four values of the American dream are all depicted in this manner. And I'm almost tempted to say that 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 in mafioso rap, the selling of of crack cocaine being a good uh, drug dealer in the sense of being a successful drug dealer is inverted capitalism, but it's not really inverted at all. It's the same kinds of logic that goes on in big business capitalism. The difference is that this is not, not sanctioned, but so are plenty of things that people in big business do, right? Not exactly sanctioned either. They're working out ways of taking advantage of markets, taking advantage of situations, using third world country labor in order to to make products cheaper, regardless of the obvious exploitation involved. And so what mafioso rap seems to give voice to is that same kind of uh, muted crisis of com- uh, conscience. That on the one hand, uh, there's this notion that one has to attain, one has to uh, rise up in the world no matter what, damn the consequences. That's the nature of the American dream. On the other hand, there's an awareness that your success is, is predicated upon the failure of others, that for you to rise, someone else must fall. Let's have one more example. I mean, that, that, that album had a huge impact uh, in 1995 and, and things following it. So, so there's a, a whole slew of albums that arise after that that build on this notion of the mafia um, analogies with, uh, with street-level crack sales, right? And the idea of the, the crack dealer as being a kind of ghetto hero, a ghetto uh, capitalist success. Uh, two of the important ones, of course, that came out immediately after were Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt from 1996 and Biggie's uh, Life After Death of 1997. We'll deal with Biggie in the next segment, but uh, Jay-Z, of course, right? The Jay-Z... Uh, Skits and, and notice that a lot of the mafioso raps, especially after Raekwon, uh, involve skits, right? I mean, Raekwon's album is is rife with skits. There, in fact, so many that RZA wanted some of them cut, right? And he tried to he, he stopped them from doing one. Uh, was it before Wu Gambino's? I don't remember uh, which track it was, but he he insisted that there was no way they were going to do yet another skit. And he, he gave them a time limit on how, how you know, much time they had to do these skits, and they just rushed through them because uh, Raekwon felt that the skits were such an integral part of the cinematic nature of the album. And, you know, depends on your patience for skits, I suppose. Uh, but he really tries to uh, create this, this entire world that's unfolding, a narrative that's unfolding across, across the album. And then, as I mentioned, there are also direct... Um, quotes, direct uh, samples from these various movies themselves, right? From Scarface, from uh, John Woo's The Killers. Reasonable Doubt by Jay-Z goes in a different direction. And it's a kind of strange one, if you listen to that album. Uh, the, the first track um, from it and several other tracks employ skits that are very clearly channeling films like Carlito's Way and Scarface. Uh, but instead of of simply quoting those films, or instead of hiring a voice actor that sounds like Al Pacino, they get who, this fellow, who I guess was an intern at Rockefeller, at uh, Jay-Z's business, right, uh, who goes by the moniker of pain in the ass, and he does the worst Al, Al uh, Pacino impersonation you can imagine doing, and that's what shows up 
And so there's this part of it is is for an obvious reason that within each of these skits or the monologues or whatever you want to call them. Jay-Z's name is brought into play here. He is the gangster that's being referred to. So, of course, you can't just use a citation from Scarface because there's no line in Scarface that has Jay-Z's name in it. But the fact that it's this very poor imitation of of uh, the Al Capone, I think, gives it a, a certain... Uh, strange flavor, at least in my opinion, right? There's something jokey about it. And yet at the same time, that joke is this way of, of kind of saying, well, I'm serious, but I'm not that serious about what I'm saying. There's a playfulness to it. I'm not in that game anymore anyway, right? Even if that was the foundation in some ways of my wealth, I'm not part of that anymore. I can look back at it as something that was a foible of the past. That's one way of looking at it, at least. Now, there's one more song that I'd like to discuss before we move on to the next segment, and that's from 1998 from the album Capital Punishment by Big Pun, and it's, of course, a, a duo uh, between Big Pun and his um, very good friend and in some ways mentor, Fat Joe. This is the song Twins, um, uh, based on a Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg track, uh, where they really try to uh, to basically take on this earlier West Coast track and, and reinvent it. And once again, we have some of the same kind of imagery uh, that shows up, this idea of, of the Punisher, of Big Pun here, uh, and, and um, Joe Crack, as he's called here, Joey Crack, right, uh, Fat Joe, being these gangsters. Um, and indeed, they even mention there's a line in the beginning, meet me at Vito's with noodles. We'll, we'll do this dude while he's slurping spaghetti, right? So uh, an obvious allusion, the slurping spaghetti, an obvious allusion to the Godfather. And the bit with noodles, maybe that's, again, coming from Once Upon a Time in America, or maybe it's a direct reference to the Raekwon album. It's hard to, hard to know. But later in that same verse, uh, Big Pun has one of his most celebrated couplets. Right? I'm not going to do it justice in reciting it, so I'm just reading it here. But it goes, dead in the middle of Little Italy, little do we know that we riddled some middlemen who didn't do diddly. Right? So they, they, create, they committed this homicide. They murdered this guy uh, in the middle of Little Italy. Right? And, and then later they realize uh, that they were just middlemen, that the, the people that they killed were just middlemen who didn't do diddly. Right? But notice that, first of all, there are a couple of things to say here. One is that Big Pun didn't want to put that line in, that couplet in at first. He thought it was something of a tongue twister, a sort of game. He had apparently had a bunch of these that he would recite. Um, and it was Fat Joe that insisted he put it in. And then Fat Joe says in, a, in an interview later that he almost regretted it because it, that is one of the most celebrated lines and really in all that era's hip-hop. Uh, and, and so he felt, uh, Fat Joe felt that he was going to kill it on that album and on that track. And of course, Big Pun in some ways owns that track, which is only right. It's his album. But at any rate, notice the... Uh, uh, the way that the internal rhymes work and the way that they, they build up, right? Dead in the middle of little Italy, little do we know, right? So the, the little on both sides of Italy, but all these I sounds uh, and it'll, 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 uh, Italy, right? So you have middle, it'll, right? Little, it'll, Italy, where the it is now at the beginning. The it'll is at the beginning. Little did we know that we riddled some middle men who didn't do diddly, right? So it, it has this cadence of, uh, of gunfire, to it. it it's it's again quite cinematic but here the cinematic aspect isn't the the um 
um, skit or a acting out or a quote from a movie, it's embedded within the delivery of the of the verse itself. Let's now turn to another approach to the celebration of capitalism in uh, in hip hop, one that's related in some ways to mafioso rap, but also quite distinct in other ways. Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, Puffy Diddy, no matter what you call him, he's one of the most criticized and fascinating figures of 90s hip-hop. He's been accused of being overly self-involved, overly concerned with profit over art, exploitative, tasteless, you name it. But he's created a veritable empire for himself. Alongside figures like Jay-Z, Puff Daddy's one of hip-hop's most successful entrepreneurs. In 2019, his worth was estimated at $740 million. He started a clothing line, Sean John, in 1998, owned two restaurants named after his son, Justin's. They're both closed now. Designed the jersey for the Dallas Mavericks, helped design Ciroc uh, Vodka. He's a major investor in numerous companies. But of course, his most famous endeavor and most celebrated business deal led to the formation of Bad Boy Records and Bad Boy Entertainment. Puff got his start in the music business as an intern at Andre Harrell's uh, Uptown Records in 1990. This was the home of the innovative producer Terry Riley and his new style dubbed New Jack Swing, combining R&B and hip-hop beats. Uh, Puff immediately impressed uh, Andre with just his, his eagerness to work. Whenever he had to, he was an unpaid intern at first, right? And whenever he had to deliver something uh, several blocks away, he'd run the whole way there and run the whole way back. Uh, Andre Harrell once made a joke that he never saw, in those early days, Puff Daddy without his tie projected behind him because he he was running. Soon, uh, Puff moved up to helping develop artists such as Mary J. Blige and Jodeci. Building on Riley's innovations, Puff introduced somewhat harder beats and introduced what he called uh, uh, hip-hop soul. Most prominently featured on Blige's landmark album, What's the 411? Uh, This was the perfect representation of the ghetto fabulous chic that Harrell wanted his label to represent. 
This wasn't music of the ghetto exactly. Uh, it was f- music of aspiration, music of people who may have come from the ghetto but were looking to get out or had already gotten out, who had established themselves in the middle class. That was the, the, the feel of the label at the time. Puff expanded his fame by throwing industry parties, what he called Daddy's House, at the Red Zone Club in Manhattan. He became not just the manager and A&R rep for artists and celebrities, he was fast becoming a celebrity in his own right. Indeed, Vibe magazine devoted an early article to Puff, a bold move, and that Vibe was meant for general consumption. It wasn't an industry paper, just for insiders. So the general wisdom regarding featuring a producer was that it would be too specific for such a general audience. But of course, Puff was an exception. He was an emerging star. In 1993, Harold hired an outsider for a position Puff believed ought to have gone to him. He acted out, was fired, taking two artists with him, Notorious B.I.G. and Craig Mack. He signed a million-dollar deal, plus recording funds, plus a loan to build a studio with Clive Davis and Arista Records. And he started his own label, Bad Boy Entertainment. Soon Puff started appearing in the music videos with his artists, appearing as a hype man on the recordings. This is what contributed to Suge Knight's diss on Puff at the Notorious Source Award ceremony of 1995, uh, where he, he said, you know, if you, if you don't want a producer that's, quote, all in the videos, all on the records dancing, then come to Death Row Records, end quote. Now, of course, uh, what Puff Daddy's quickly doing is emerging not just as a hype man and a producer of of note, a a celebrity producer, but soon moves to uh, create an image of of him as a rapper himself. And of course, that's most famously accomplished on his uh, first solo album, No Way Out. One of the famous songs, of course, on that album is It's All About the Benjamins, which I think typifies Uh, Puff in a lot of ways. One of the things that's interesting about Puff Daddy as he's coming up is he really doesn't make any um, bones about the fact that he had a largely middle-class upbringing. He was raised in Mount Vernon in the West uh, Chester County uh, of New York. In many ways, he lived a pretty standard suburban life. He lost his father when he was two or three years old. His father was shot uh, near Central Park. Uh, he had always thought it was, or had long thought that it was a drive-by shooting. It turns out his father was involved in, in the drug business and may have even been shot by people he worked for who were afraid that he'd turn snitch. But none of that impacted, I mean, obviously the death of his father impacted Puff, but, but he didn't realize that, that connection until much later. For Puff Daddy, the, uh, the, his upbringing was really, like I said, suburban. The story he often tells is how his neighbors, these white kid neighbors, had a pool and wouldn't invite him in. And so he uh, bugged his mom to get a pool of their own, which she did. And then he decided who could come in and swim and who couldn't. So these middle class aspirations of some form of, of power, some form of control, even if in this case it's a relatively childish one. And so this idea of attainment. That what, what marks one as successful is the American dream of attaining wealth. The great example of that on his album, No Way Out, is, of course, all about the Benjamins, the, the big single um, from that album. It consists of two samples. The first sample, the main sample, the one that almost everyone um, in, on the track raps over, is um, 
from from uh, Love Unlimited, mm. and it's a song called "I Did It for Love." Now they lower Puff lowers um, the pitch, and so what we mostly hear is this guitar line playing a, a repeated B flat. And there's a bass line underneath it that's a G. And so you get this basic G minor sonority, very typical of a lot of uh, that minor kind of groove, very typical of a lot of hip-hop of the, of the era. The other sample's far more interesting, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. Um, this is, by the way, I said Puff, but this is really a, a production by Derek D. Angeletti, right? Um, and, and like I said, we'll come back to the other one, uh, the other sample. Puff, of course, has one of his most famous opening lines as far as his career as a rapper is concerned. Now, what y'all want to do? Want to be ballers, shot callers, brawlers who be dipping in the bends with the spoilers, end quote, right? So, and, and what I don't, what I can't possibly reproduce is his delivery. And that's one of the things I want to come back to when it comes to Puff is this delivery of his. But but notice right from the beginning, there's nothing here that's necessarily about the streets, right? Uh, the idea of being a baller is, uh, or a shot caller and, a, and even a brawler in this sense, uh, because we immediately go into the bends with spoilers and, and then all of these symbols of great wealth. And the things that one can accomplish with wealth, the, the things one can own, the property, and the, the women that uh, will find that appealing. So these are status symbols of monetary attainment. And his, he, he has various puns in his, uh, his opening verse, right? Trying to get my hands on some grants like Horace, right? Referencing uh, the, the um, basketball player Horace Grant. He has fancy meals, uh, fancy cars, fancy women, and he hides a certain amount of money in Brazil, so he's not totally uh, clean, but at the same time, hiding offshore funds is not something alien to most established CEOs. Now, this is, of course, a, a group cut. There are lots of rappers on it, um, including two members of The Locks, uh, um, uh, Lil' Kim, and then... Uh, Biggie Smalls, and we'll get to him in just a second. Uh, the next one to, to rap is Jadakiss from, from The Locks, right? And he raps about similar concerns, fancy clothes, liquors, uh, the wherewithal to gamble. Sheik Louche touches on the means of getting these riches, which is for him selling coke in his verse, right? And this will be a big part of Big's verse, but in, in uh, Sheik Louche's verse, it kind of comes and goes. Puff then reprises his opening, the, the ballers, shot callers, brawlers bit. And then Lil' Kim comes in with a verse that's basically threatening haters and has a reference to, to Goodfellas, right? And so ref, a reference to uh, a mafia movie, but that's about as far as it goes. But then, now that we've been most of the way through the track, and you've had, what, uh, uh, four different rappers, right? And a reprise from Puff. So most of the track is done. And then we shift to the second sample. And that sample is, again, slowed down a bit. It's from the Jackson 5, um, a tune called It's Great to Be Here. It, too, is slowed down from the original so that it's in the key of E-flat. And that'll be significant. We'll come back to that. It's got this cool little line in the original. It's a horn line. So you have this progression that's basically going from, from E-flat to E-flat 7 to A-flat to A-flat minor. And then the line above that goes... So notice another repeated line, just like we had with that B-flat earlier. But now on E-flat, with a different rhythm, right? 
Right? So it's a kind of cool little bit there where there's this descending from the E flat to the D flat to a C to a C flat, that kind of figure, um, all while you have that, that rising line. Now, notice we're in the key of E flat, and that makes the B flat that we've heard throughout most of this track feel almost like it's some kind of minor dominant to that E flat. It feels like we fall into place. We drop down in the E-flat. It does not feel to me like we're going up to E-flat. It feels like we drop down to an E-flat, as though the real source of, of the whole track is now being revealed, the, the real power of it. Um, in a sense, what, what Biggie's doing, of course, is he's batting cleanup, right? He's, he's, he's at the end here. Um, but it feels as though the entire track has a kind of gravitational force, so that it falls into his moment. It's a kind of harmonic highlighter, in a sense, right? Now, his verses reference Donnie Brasco and the King of New York mob films. Uh, his opening is, I've been had skills, crystal spills, high bills in Brazil, about a mill, the ice grill, right? So again, um, going back to this idea of, of Brazil, uh, and, and there's something Clever even about that, right? Cristal and Brazil, the, the reversal of, uh, of, of um, vowels there. I'm not sure if that's inten- intentional or what. Is that a, a symbol for a kind of fungibility, the idea that one thing can be exchanged for the other, just like money goes back and forth? Uh, and th- that's, of course, furthered uh, by the chiasmus or the palindromic element of his line, fuck the state pen, fuck hoes and Penn state, right? Where you had state pen, Penn state uh, as a reversal. This idea that Biggie is at the center of it all, that, that, that the harmony was always pointing toward this arrival, right, the arrival in E-flat, seems significant to me. It's a way in which even on his own album, Puff Daddy is functioning in a way as a kind of hype man. But he's a special kind of hype man, isn't he? Very different from uh, Flavor Flav or other famous hype men. Usually the function of a hype man is obviously to hype someone else. The usual function of the producer is to produce someone else. But Puff was one of the early proponents of the producer as a star. He produced himself as a major figure through producing the records of Mary J. Blige, Big, and his whole roster of artists. And they became his roster, his crew. They emanated something of his. And he was, you have to remember, he was a highly controversial producer. A lot of people thought of him as a lazy producer. As he himself said, uh, we take hits from the 80s and, and, and make them crazy, make them seem crazy. Um, for some people, the last part wasn't exactly true. He didn't make them seem crazy. Some people think of Hypnotize, for instance, as basically just I'm coming out with people rapping over it. It's, it's just a reworking of I'm coming out. There's very little done uh, to the track. Now, we don't have to agree with this, but the point is that, that there's an element to Puff where he is creating a sound that's his sound and a roster that's his roster and everything is an emanation of him. Even his ad-libs, notice how his ad-libs work. They're almost whispered, yet he mixes them very loud. He's closer to you in the oral space than Biggie in a lot of the the Biggie recordings where he's ad-libbing, which is a lot of the recordings. There's also something wonderfully smug about his delivery, both in his raps and his ad-libs, and that's what I was referring to earlier. This can be off-putting for some people, of course, but it might be his greatest moment of signifying within his art. He's above you. He doesn't need you. He can whisper, and yet you still listen. 
That indifference is attractive if you expect a performer, is unattractive rather, if you expect the performer to ingratiate himself to you. If you think the idea of a performer is to cater to you, then that seems terribly unattractive. But if he's a model for independent success, then his attitude might be admirable, not unlike Miles Davis. Think, to, to close things up, think of his dance. If you haven't already seen it, look it up on YouTube. His dance at the 1997 MTV Music Video Awards. And this is after Biggie's died. Um, and, and he's doing his version of the um, police song, right? Every Breath You Take. Uh, in, in dedication to, to Biggie, obviously. And he has a huge choir and he has Sting there. And there's a whole story there, right, that uh, he didn't originally ask for permission to use the sample. And so uh, Sting wound up getting all the profits uh, from that particular single, which makes it uh, uh, very lucrative for Sting, but also made it, uh, it gave him a strong reason to show up at the awards and perform. So this was a huge production. And it begins with Sting singing the refrain and Puff coming out and doing this dance. But it's not a dance that, again, ingratiates itself toward, toward an audience. It kind of folds in on itself. There's an involuted nature to it. And I start to think there's a kind of involuted nature to Puff as a whole. He's the perfect symbol in some ways for hip-hop capitalism, because it's not capitalism is rebellion. It's capitalism is playing the game and playing it maybe a little better, figuring out another way to do it, not being so concerned with uh, appealing to others so much as turning in on oneself and realizing that that's part of your charm. That's part of, of the mystery that surrounds you. And so if people want to be a part of that, they have to buy into it. And maybe you unfold for them. Yeah, and maybe you don't. 